welcome to Culture First, the podcast that focuses on culture in its broadest sense, from putting people back at the heart of organisational change, through to the seismic shifts taking place in society every single day. My name is Vimla and I'm the co-founder and director of culture design at Honey Badger, a UK business that focuses on designing and delivering measurable change to organisations through experience and culture. Today on the podcast, we have Annette Joseph, the founder and chief executive of Diverse and Equal, an organisation that's putting diversity and inclusion at the forefront of cultural change. Annette is above and beyond one of the most inspiring and powerful people I've had the privilege of working with and speaking to. Annette's take on culture dives into her journey as a person of colour, working in digital and technology in the UK and the USA. And most importantly, why she's using her voice to create change to challenge the status quo so that no one has to go through what she's been through. If there's one reason to listen to this podcast, it's to hear what power each and every one of us has to create change in the organisations we work with. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoy taking part. Happy listening. So to kick us off, do you want to tell our listeners just what you're working on at the moment and what you're most excited about? So diverse and equal. So we aim to increase diversity in tech and we do that by working with organisations to help them understand the tangible business benefits of diversity and by helping them to unlock cultures that to create cultures that can unlock those benefits. And then we also work with people from underrepresented backgrounds to skill them up and train them so that they're eligible for entry-level roles, sometimes higher than that, actually. Um, At the moment, quite a lot going on, (laughs) to be fair. (laughs) So at the moment, we're working with a... We're doing a piece of research on the barriers to entry for Black people in tech, and that came about from the Black Tech Fund that I created after I wrote that piece on George Floyd death and the effect that had on me. So we raised just under £6,000 and we've put that towards doing the research. And while we've been doing the research, we have been training a trio of people from different industries and getting them ready for user research roles. And they have been absolutely absolutely fantastic (laughs) they're absolutely amazing and they really in the flesh proving our concept that there are people out here who already have transferable skills already have the right behaviors right attitudes to work in tech they just need a new set of tools layering Mm -hmm. on top and we're also um, going to be launching some taster sessions on data for data science So we're going to do a data science taster series and we'll be working in collaboration with DataCamp. We've got some partnering with them or we've partnered with them and they've given us some free licenses so that we can offer their program, which is amazing. It's all very exciting. (laughs) Very exciting. And I I know loads about the article that you've written, but I'm aware our, our listeners might not. So could you tell us a bit more about that and how the fund started to begin with? So... Around about the, the time of the death of George Floyd or the murder of George Floyd, I had been off of social media because I was really, really busy with work. And so I was head down, off of everything, just working. And it wasn't until I'd seen like bits and pieces of things, but hadn't really paid much attention. And it wasn't until 
the Saturday morning, I came downstairs, opened the curtains, like, oh, sunshine, yay. <laughs> came in the kitchen and opened up, put the kettle on, actually, opened up social media and was barraged with just horrific um, images of black bodies just being brutalised. So the murder, I didn't watch that video. I saw the clips of it, but I didn't actually watch the video because I couldn't. Mm. But then the protesters and how the protesters were being treated, it was, you know, police cars running into them and them getting pepper sprayed in the face and being beaten. And and literally I watched it and it, it was like I didn't breathe for like, 10 minutes that's what it felt like I just watched it in horror I couldn't stop watching before I knew it I was curled up in a ball on the floor sobbing just just sobbing and I pulled myself together it was like weighing on me I went to the march that day as well which made me feel feel better when I saw people of different races and people who are not normally involved in marching that was a smaller march. So I did that. But then the whole week or the, the few days after, it really bothered me. I'm like, I don't know these people. I'm not mm. in the US. I live in the UK. I'm not there. I'm not related to any of them. I don't know any of them. Why? What is it about this incident or these incidents that have affected me so much? Mm. And I kind of the way I do my own therapy is to write. And so a lot of the times I ask myself questions and then wait with a pen in my hand <laughs> and the answers just come, come out on the page. And that's what happened with that article. So I asked myself the question, what is it about this, this particular incident? Why does it feel so visceral? Why is it so, so close? And so I just started writing and then when I could see that it was going to be a lot then I transferred to the computer mm. and that that article most of it the majority of the article the bones of it came out in about an hour and then it probably took me a couple of days of back and forth and like with my trusted people to to make sure you know that I was yeah that it was on the right track and that I wasn't saying anything that was going to get me in trouble <laughs> but I was I was terrified to publish it even after it was finished and it was ready to go I was absolutely terrified but it's been remarkable the response to it so I've had black people contact me and say to me oh my god you've captured exactly our my pain and you've verbalised what it was that I was feeling and I could not quite identify. And that has felt amazing to have, like, lots of black people contact me and say that because that means that I know I'm being true to my people and our experience here. And then I've had white people contact me and say, thank you for letting me know that, this is how you, like black people have been living. This has been your experience because I never knew. I didn't see, you know, now that I look back and I think about it, I can see, but I didn't see it at the time. And then one of the things that the article did as well was I was very, 
I wanted to make sure because I'm, I'm a problem solver at heart. That is who I am. And I wanted to make sure that it wasn't just a whiny article or even just an experience, but give people practical tips on what they can do to do better. Because this is all about people doing better and treating each other, treating each other like human beings. Yeah. So it had a bunch of resources to back up all of the facts <laughs> in the article. And it had tips of things that people could do. And so people were very thankful of the resources and the tips as well. So it was amazing. And so with that, I know you you mentioned there that you're not in the US at the moment, but you have had experience in the US. So what was it like seeing all of this unfold, knowing, knowing that culture so well, but also being rooted in a British culture here? I think that it wouldn't have made that much of a difference to be Mm -hmm. honest I was reading something I've been reading quite a lot of stuff I don't remember what it was or where I got it from (laughs) I was reading like if it was Twitter or a book (laughs) yeah um I was reading something and somebody said I think it was actually Instagram (laughs) that the only difference between so it had a picture of black people Haiti Cuba America the UK the only difference is like this, we're all family. And the only difference between all of these people is a boat ride. Yeah. And so black people in the diaspora, we are African. That's where we came from. The only reason we are where we are is because we were taken. So we are, we are all connected. The, Afri- the continent is huge, but because we were taken and mixed together, we're different but we're the same so yeah yeah, it doesn't matter where yeah it's just black people yeah yeah and so then on that note what does culture mean to you for me culture I'm Caribbean my parents are from St Kitts and Nevis I grew up in Chapel Town in Leeds and Chapel Town is like it's the black area. It used to be, not now, because it's been gentrified. <laughs> but it's the black area. So if you ever went to Leeds, all pretty much 95% of all the black people, apart from a few college uh, university students that were African students that come over, lived in Chapel Town. And so it was predominantly black it was a few white people and a few Asian people that lived, South Asian people that lived in Chapel Town, but it was predominantly black and brown. And our culture is rich and joyful and loud. We love music, we love food, <laughs> we love being together. And it's all about celebrating life. When I th- think about some of the things that we experience and some of the things that we have come through it's actually quite surprising that it's still so joyful and loud yeah but culture is carnival it's dancing it's music it's you know spicy food and just being able to be together and being able to celebrate who you are and your ancestry and being proud of who you are. Mm. Yeah, that's such a beautiful way of describing culture. 
and it as you were saying I can imagine the kind of the joy walking down the streets and the shouting hellos and yeah shared cuisine is always something that I'm yes. fond of anyway, so. <laughs> <You know. laughs> yeah. and so how does that then translate into professional culture what was that like I have been the first, the only, pretty much my whole career. Started off as a graphic designer, first black person, black female, first black person because the other person was mixed, still black, but yeah. Um, <laughs> first black female in Leeds to do graphic design at Jacob Kramer. Wow. So when I went into the industry, so I was, I experienced some stuff at college. We're not, we're not going to go there. I experienced some stuff at college. But when I went into the industry, they were, everybody else got a job except for me. Nobody else. And, and I wasn't the worst one at all, obviously. Yeah. Um, I was probably one of the close to the top. But everybody else got a job except for me. And so I couldn't, I went through this, the stage of, I hid my address. <laughs> I hid my address on my CV. I put Chapel Allerton instead of Chapel Town. That got me, that mm. actually got me interviews. That, that helped. Wow. And then when I walked into the room, it was like, yeah, you're not getting that. So I worked for free. We didn't do internships. Well, they did, but not like that. So I, I chose the top three agencies in Leeds and worked for them for free for three months each, just so that I could get the contacts. And so I could get into the industry. So from there, I was, yeah, in Leeds, definitely the only black person doing graphic design, black female. There's a, a, a man that had come from Jamaica um, who was older and, and quite esteemed. Yep. And then I think the first time I had black co-workers was when I worked in London for a bit. Uh, that was pretty cool, actually. So being at most times the only one, I might have been not the only one in a wider team, but being the only one like in the, the core team, it's difficult sometimes because you cannot, people have this idea of who they think you are. So they see your skin or well, they see my skin, I'll speak specifically for myself, um, they see my skin and they think that they know Annette because Annette's black, so Annette must like this and Annette must do that and Annette must, you know, they have no idea <laughs> who I am at all, but they think that yeah. they know. And so what I found was that I had to suppress, I kind of got used to suppressing myself and not being I like I would be the opposite of of what they thought black was even yeah. though that sometimes some of those things were me like I do like to be loud <laughs> that's you know that's the yeah. person that I am and but I would tone it down on purpose because I needed to show them an example of a black person that was the opposite of the stereotype that they thought so that they would yeah. respect me and so that they would see me, but actually didn't respect or see a lot of, not everybody, obviously I'm not, it's not everybody, but uh, quite a few people. So 
it's only in the past three years, four years, I've actually been brave enough to be myself. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I'm I'm off I've been working for thirty years, so that's that's a, a long time. Yeah. And exhausting. It's mm. exhausting having to be someone else for ten hours a day. Absolutely. What was it that helped give you that confidence to start being yourself? So I went to so getting into digital helped. So here is, I was in marketing before, digital marketing. And then here is this, and like I've been, in dig, I was in digital marketing, but I've always been a problem solver, graphic designer, web designer, whatever, digital marketer, always about solving problems. And sometimes mm-hmm. stuff would come up and I would start to look for, I'm not satisfied with putting plaster on the on top of something and calling it fixed <laughs> I want to yeah. know where this problem came from so that we could fix it from the root so we'd have to deal with it again yeah. but that has had got me into trouble throughout my career it's like who is this woman who does she think she is and so when Mike Bracken Tom Moore, and Ben Terrence came to the co-op I was working condensed hours and so mm-hmm. I was in the office late later later and they were they were sitting where we were sitting but they were out in meetings all day so when they came back at the end of the evening after all their meetings they'd be sitting and talking about the work that they were doing and it just sounded so exciting I'm like oh my god they're dealing with problems like they're trying to find the actual problems that the actual users are facing so that they can fix them oh my god I've got to be involved in this so Being in an environment where people encourage you to be authentic and tell the truth because they actually want to know what the problems are and they actually want to know where your issues are and places where you really are succeeding, um, that was incredibly empowering. And the people who tend to be attracted to working in that way think differently as well. So that was the beginning of it was being in a safe environment and then I went to a conference back in 2017 called Tech Inclusion in London with my son actually who's uh, neurodiverse and he's got Asperger's and so we we went down to London went to this conference and it was the first time where I felt like different but not different but amongst so many people that were different that my difference wasn't a thing (laughs) it was so empowering there was absolutely everybody every race every religion every there was neurodiverse people able-bodied disabled there was everybody absolutely every and everybody was confident enough to be themselves and it was such an empowering atmosphere like even going to the ladies going to the loo and people like oh my god this is amazing isn't it oh gosh I can't believe we're all it was just absolutely fantastic because up until that point when people were talking to me about diversity or people mentioned diversity when I actually went to the event or went to the meeting or whatever all they were really talking about was gender that was it we weren't talking about anybody else or considering anybody else so to be in this atmosphere it was phenomenal and then at the end of it, they made, it was 
Dr. J from ThoughtWorks. They made a, a quest for everybody to make a pledge. Um, they said that basically you are in a, you may not think you are, but you're in a position of power and you're in a position of influence. And if you don't stand up and allow people to see you, then you're not helping. You, people need to be able to see you and hear your voice so that they can then stand up and be heard and be seen. And so I made the pledge to speak up and amplify. And that's what I've been doing ever since. That's incredible. It's amazing how there's a single, not obviously it, it come with the whole of your career, but there's a single point that you can look back on and say, that was it. That's what gave me my voice and my power. And listening to you talk about all of that has made me reflect on the industry. And actually not much has changed since you joined. So there aren't a lot of black designers out there. There aren't a lot of people of colour in digital and tech. So what is it? What do you think is wrong with the culture in your industry? So first of all, I guess like I was away from home. I was in America for a long time, like 15 years I was away. And when I came back, I left it in a, in a particular state. And when I came back, it was the same. <laughs> I could not get my head around the fact that it's the same. I'm like, there's still like one and two black people dotted around. What the heck is going on? And I think that it's because of, which is one of the things that I'm working on right now, and one of the things that I've been working so hard to do over the past few years, it's because... We've been talking about diversity and inclusion, the race relations that came out in 1978. And we've been talking about it since then. And there have been billions and billions of pounds spent on initiatives and programs and this and the other. But I think what the problem is the narrative. So when I speak to people, organisations, when I started speaking to organisations about getting black and brown people, just mentioning diversity. And then when I start talking about race, people start talking about lowering the bar and saying, oh, well, we have to hire the best person for the job. And they make, there is an automatic assumption that if you tick a box for race um, that is not white, that you are somehow less than. And I think that we have, as a country, have allowed that to go on because the narrative around diversity and inclusion has been on ethics rather than profit. And while treating people like human beings is an ethical thing, it's not charity. And I think that's how people think of it as charity. Oh, we're going to help these these poor black people because they're a bit stupid and a bit lazy. Mm. (laughs) You know, they don't really know what they're doing, but we'll lower the bar and we'll let them in. Yeah. And it's just... We'll we'll help them reach their full potential. Yeah, and always potential. That word... (laughs) That word potential. That word potential is just so... It's just so condescending. It's so condescending. It's like I have been in a position where I have 
outperformed, like literally to the stars and back. Knew it was one of the best years of my career. And I've always been another performer because that's how my dad was like, you have to be better. If you want to get on, you have to be better. Twice as good, not good enough. Three, four, mm-hmm. five times is better in order to get any kind of respect and in order to pursue your career and, and be successful. You have to be better. So that is something that has always been drilled into me. So I have had a stellar, amazing year, best year of my career. I know it has. And the person was talking to me about, oh, well, potential. Excuse me? <laughs> Excuse me. How about you compare my performance to, some, to everybody else who's on my level and talk to me about potential? How about that? You know, stop, mm. stop. It's like when, when I find, and speak for me, I find that when I have, so people have this idea, even the well-meaning ones, because they have this, this narrative, this national narrative that black people are less than, and people would see me overperforming and think, mm, yeah, she must have had help with that. That she that, that couldn't have been her. She couldn't have done that. Somebody else had had somebody helped her with that. So then, when somebody else who was jealous and not very pleasant to work with <laughs> came forward and said she's taking credit for other people's work, no evidence, no, no, and ten other people are coming to to the same person to say that's not true. That's not mm-hmm. true. I've seen her do these things. He believed that one person, because in the back of this person's mind, they're like, no, that the narrative doesn't fit this person, so that it can't be right. So yeah. in terms of culture, we have a national narrative about black people that is insulting and incorrect. And so it's national. It's not just tech workplaces or the workplace. It's in our national um, narrative and that is because of what we're taught about history and that's because of the education system that's because of the way that media portrays us and it's based on I won't say lies it's based on omission that's what it's Mm. based on yeah yeah, it's an over-justification of the people who succeed and acceptance of the people who are mediocre. It's like, oh, no, they are an anomaly. They're one of a kind. They went above and beyond to get to that place, and it discredits everyone else that does the same thing all the time. Exactly. So when, sorry, when I was, no, when no, I, okay. <laughs> when I was leaving, when I was leaving the co-op, I won the Being Co-op Award for do what matters most so there were three or four awards i can't remember what they all are see the three or four awards that are given every year and that was out of seventy-three thousand employees and i won being do what matters most and um, when i was leaving i had like three leaving dues <laughs> when i was leaving people kept saying the word legacy and you know you've done so well and this and the other and it was amazing to hear and fabulous, but I had to say, I'm not special. I'm not special. Yeah. I've done things because I'm at a stage in my career and a stage in my life where I have the confidence in my abilities 
and have found my voice that I can actually speak up for myself. But there's so many people who can do better than what I have done if they are given the chance. And that is true, I think, of every single organisation, every organisation. Stop, like, pressing people down and stopping them from progressing. And it's not cool. And it's not good for business. It's not wise. (laughs) It's not good for business at all. Or retention. No, and you get the same thing of anyone who's changing ideas, like who tries to challenge the status quo, gets pushed out or pushed down. And it's just proliferated when that's because they're others or because they're because of their race or because of their neurodiversity or because of their gender it just makes no sense and when you stack those things on top of each other yeah yeah so how do you bridge the gap between this kind of huge societal culture problem and then turning it into like action in the workplace and trying to shift cultures in the industry? So I, first, I think the first thing is acceptance because you can't change anything until you accept that you have a problem. Um, and as a nation, we haven't accepted that yet. We haven't accepted responsibility for where we are and who we are and the things and our history. We haven't accepted responsibility for that yet. But that's as a nation. As an organisation, we can totally, organisations can totally accept responsibility for who they are. And when we go and work with organisations, what we typically do is start with an audit. So speak to people who are in the organisation who are different and see what their experiences are confidentially so that we can get a view of the truth because it's only when you face the truth that you can change things. And then after you've faced the truth and you know exactly where the issues are, we put together a plan. We do some training where people in a safe space can hold a mirror up to themselves to see actually I might be part of this problem as well, unknowingly, unwittingly, but still part of the problem. That facing it is the first thing and then a plan. Yeah. And we've spoken a lot about the kind of evidence or lack of throughout in claims made against you, but also in history, the lack of evidence that exists for all of the stereotypes. What's the link between our culture and the industry culture to evidence and data, how we come to those decisions? So there is no link <laughs> at the moment because we don't have any data. <laughs> there is no link. And that is the problem because mm-hmm. we've been talking about race relations since 1978 and we really haven't made that much progress. And But we don't know for sure how much progress we've made in certain industries opposed to others because nobody's collecting the data. There's this taboo around speaking about race because nobody wants to say the wrong thing or nobody wants to offend anybody. And I know personally and all of the people I know, we don't get offended speaking about race at all. I'm not embarrassed to be black. I'm not, I don't have a problem with it. I, I'll talk about it all day long. You can say black. 
I'm fine <laughs> because you can see me. <laughs> um, and so this narrative around, you know, don't want to say the wrong thing, don't want to be accused of being the R-word, yeah, don't want to be accused of that, that has taken prominence over people's willingness to act, yeah. So because nobody wants to be called the R-word, then they do nothing. And it's that doing nothing that has hurt us. And it's that doing nothing that has brought us to where we are. We have to be able to face it. Like black people, brown people, we don't get offended when, when you talk about race. If you're being offensive and you're being, you intentionally say something to hurt, fair enough. If you're pointing out an obvious fact, I am black. <laughs> like, why? How is that offensive? That mm-hmm. is a, a narrative that is created to stop us from talking about it because they know that talking about it helps, not talking about it keeps the problem where it is. So the collecting of data is so important. It's so crucial. It has to be done with trust. So a lot of organizations trying to collect data on their colleagues will not be able to collect data on their colleagues because their employees don't trust them. They don't trust what they're going to do with that data. So trust is a big thing. But also you have to be clear about what you're going to do with it. You have to be honest and do what you say you're going to do with it and nothing more. People feel it's going to be used to hurt them. But if you make your, your case plain as to why you're collecting the data and what you're going to do with it and show regular progress, then I don't think it's an issue, not a problem. Yeah. I also, there's, you mentioned it of kind of holding a mirror up to yourself. And I think there's a genuine fear of what people are going to see back in that reflection because of the, you can live in ignorance bliss when you don't know what the data is telling you. But as soon as you start to see the figures of, how many black people have left or the proportion of black people who didn't get promoted against white, you start to realise that there's a real problem in the organisation and that means you have to act. And that's scary. And again, the fear of the R word rearing its head once those figures become known or out there or why the decision to have affirmative action or whatever the conclusion is comes out. Yeah, absolutely. But it's necessary though we can't we can't move forward without it mm. and the data it's just it's so powerful it, it we just yeah it just has to <laughs> it has to be done and the other thing is like one of the reasons why i think we've allowed the situation to go on and we because and why we haven't made progress since that much progress since 1978 is because we're looking at it from the wrong way so when you think of diversity and inclusion as a nice to have or an ethical concern or something to put on your PR, then when something more important comes up, it just falls off the agenda. It just falls away because it's not really that key. But when we talk about diversity and inclusion and ethnicity specifically being key to your success as a business all of a sudden it takes on a different shape and a different form 
Yeah, mm. it's something that has to be bought into by the exec. It needs to have, they need to be accountable for it because unless you're, it's been proven, the least that's come for tech businesses specifically. But uh, McKinsey did a report last year, said that when an organization is gender diverse and inclusive, they're 21% more profitable. When you add ethnicity to that mix, 33% more profitable. 33%. I mean, it's huge. It's absolutely massive. And when we're talking about a global market, yeah, the people who are the same cannot cater to a global market because there's so many things that they don't know. You need different voices and different views and different experiences in the mix so that you can create a product that is fit for purpose for everybody. And without that, you're leaving money on the table. So once we start changing the, the, the narrative to business benefit and money, then we're going to see a different, we're going to see a different trajectory, I think. We've mm. been focusing on the wrong thing. One of the things that I still don't understand, though, is the lack of outrage um, when it goes wrong. So the kind of self-driving cars that are more likely to run over black people or uh, Google's photo recognition that shows black people holding a gun but white people holding a kind of scanner. Like, I don't understand why those things aren't screamed about and, like, this is why you need diversity in your organisation. This is wrong. This This can't be put out into the world. I think there's so much stuff. There's so many incidences. Uh, I'm going to speak for me specifically. I'm tired. It's exhausting. It's like the aggressions, micro, the macro, on a day-to-day basis. Actually, lockdown has been quite good because it shielded me from quite a lot of it. But it's exhausting to have to fight all the time and to have to fight with a smile on your face <laughs> and pretend like you're not angry. Like, just talk about your anger like this so that people don't mm. see you as threatening um, <laughs> instead of the rage that is going on inside of you. It's exhausting. And so I think that black and brown people can only scream and shout about so many things because a lot of the times, the minute we open our mouths, people's ears close. They need something like a man being knelt on by a, somebody who's supposed to uphold the law for eight minutes and 46 seconds until he was dead to actually wake him up and think, oh, shit. But then still, there are people in this country who are, uh, all you have to do is look at Twitter. <laughs> gaslighting and the denial and the aggression that come for people when you when you speak your truth Mm. is like it's horrendous there's a cricketer can't remember his name ex-cricketer we did a interview a few months ago and he said white people get scared and we die yeah and that has been ringing around and around and around in my head because it's, it's so right. It's like the gaslighting of our aggression. That is projection. I'm not saying there aren't black people who are aggressive, but that is projection. Yeah. All of that aggression, all of that, oh, well, you're doing this and you're doing, it's exhausting 
And so we can only scream and shout about a certain amount of things. And at the end of the day, this issue is not one that we created and it's not one that we can fix. We can draw attention to it, but we can't fix it. And so it really is up for our allies and for yeah. the, the white people who who see and whose eyes are now open and they can look and they can see what is going on. It's really for them to stand up and say, no, this isn't good enough. But it takes an incredible amount of energy. And when it's not directed at you, and when you can kind of walk away and not be affected by it, it takes dedication to be able to fight for somebody else when you know that you're not really going to benefit that much from the winning of that thing. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah that is hard. It is a hard reality to face, but it's also, like you say, what's needed. Mm-hmm. And so on that, can you think of a good example of culture? So... I have a great example of culture. So funeral care team, co-op funeral care team I worked on back in 2016, I think. There was about 18 people on the team and we were all mixed. So usually engineering teams, product teams are pretty male and white. And there were couple of Indian people, you know, there was like, um, there was everybody. We were all mixed up. <laughs> we are all mixed up. And it, it was racially diverse. It was gender diverse. And we just got on. We had the best intention for the customer and the user. We did user research twice a week. The people in the team, the engineers, the designers, everybody went out and did use research so that we could get close to the customer so that we knew that we could we could see the faces of the people who would be using the product when we were building. And everybody felt comfortable to be themselves. Everybody brought their culture and their experiences. They, If they were uncomfortable about something, they just spoke. It was pretty special, actually. It's a pretty special team, yeah. What do you think made it that way? What was it that empowered people? I think being autonomous. So we were free to make our own decisions about things. We had a goal and we weren't micromanaged and it was up to us to decide how to get to that goal. And then I guess, like, as a delivery manager, it's my job to deal with dynamics and behaviours but it wasn't just my job because there were people on the team who also felt that it was important. So we had a very open dialogue with each other. And if something wasn't going right, we were brave enough to actually say and not. Yeah, we, we were honest. <laughs> Honesty, the autonomy and the, uh, and the authenticity. Everybody was themselves. If you felt like being loud, just be loud. You know, if you wanted, it was, and if you didn't feel like talking to anybody that day, you just put your headphones on and go off into a corner and nobody would flinch. Yeah. It's all about, yeah, autonomy, authenticity, and honesty. Amazing. And 
what do you think as a whole, if you had to summarise it, needs to change in the industry to get more inclusive cultures? Honesty. (laughs) Honesty, first of all. Honesty, first of all. We need to understand and see that we've got a problem. And it's not just a matter of, right, we don't, we need to get X race on our, in our company, tick the box. You have to create an environment, first of all, where people understand why diversity is important and what the benefits are and everybody needs to be on the same page before that person comes because then the person just takes the brunt of the frustration or the fear um, of the people who are already there. So the honesty, holding up a mirror to ourselves, all of us, to understand how bias operates. It's almost like a base layer of everything and understanding that so that we can consciously disrupt it. That's the first part, I Mm. think because there's no point training people and sending them into organisations. That's one thing I refuse to do. Once we we train people, we work with organisations to get them ready to reap the benefits of diversity. We train people and get them ready to go into the role. But we also ensure that that person is protected because I've been in situations throughout my career where I've been, like I said, the only one and had some horrendous experiences that I would not wish on my worst enemy. So I'm not training people to go put them in that situation. I'm not, we don't do tick boxing. So mm-hmm. we have like a, a, a package where you get that per, the team that the person is going into get support so that they can, their behavior dynamics work and you can yeah. get the benefit out of the team. And then that person has support as well. But hiring one is also not a good idea because they it's it's just it's not it's not cool. <laughs> it's you know, not nice. um, there's a massive element of it, knowing that you're the only one and often being aware because someone's told you, Oh, you're hired to be the one or yeah. just aware because you are and you see it and it's yeah. it's a huge burden. Yeah. It's one of the things that I've started to push back on as well when strangers message me on LinkedIn saying, can you introduce me to your network so that we can hire more diversity? Yeah. My pushback is no. Can you tell me what you've done to make your organisation ready for that diversity, how you'll keep people safe, how you're going to make sure they're there for longer than a year? And not a single person replies. No. Not a single one. No, nope. the amount of people that do the same thing to me. Oh, can you share this amongst your network? No. <laughs> no, I can't. <laughs> Absolutely not. No, I can't. You have to prove, you have to do the work first. You have to make sure that your environment is safe first because it's a heavy burden to bear and it's not fair. And I wouldn't, it's time for that to stop now. Mm. It's been too long. It's, it's nonsense now. Yeah. But also, if people trust your or my voice as validation for that organization as a safe place, and then it's not. That's not something I want on on my conscience. That's not. Nope. Okay. Nope. Yep. I'm with you. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Everybody just wants, oh, can we just, we need to attract, we need to attract more black and brown people. No, you don't. You need to do your work first and then yeah. the black and brown people will come to you because you've done your work. So, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah exactly. And and there are examples of, de- of that definitely out there. So it, it, it's hard to draw the line between the PR media marketing and the genuine intent but following George Floyd there was so much positive change in organizations of we've hired this new person or these are our commandments or you know our pledges to diversity and in inclusion and equity and you you kind of do see that push of like oh I can apply for a job there now or there is space for me there and that's been really empowering to see. It has. It's been amazing. Uh, what I'd like to see, again, data, is yeah. what are the stats next year? When the PR has gone away, was that something that you just did so that you could look good? Or is this something that you're really, truly interested in embedding? Yeah. Yeah. And where's the follow through? So yeah. you've said it, you've done one thing, but what's the follow through? What's the action? And who's being held accountable to that? And yeah. by whom? Yeah. Because if you don't have a network or your employees to hold you to account or your consumers, then you, you're going to get away with doing nothing. And again, that's not good enough. Yep, absolutely. And so my final question is a fun one. <laughs> so you know Honey Badger really well. I um, and we've named our organisation Honey Badger because they're fearless, powerful and intelligent. And that's what our company culture is. So... Every question, every guest that we have on, we ask this question. If you were an animal, which one would it be and why? I would be a mountain lion. (laughs) Excellent. I'd be a mountain lion Hmm. because they are, or she is, because I see her. (laughs) She is fierce. Um, She is protective over her family. Um, her clan she is the one that goes out and gets and does and brings it back mm. but she's also like she likes her like her alone time as well and she likes to kind of disappear off and and go wandering and then come back so yeah that's me <laughs> that's amazing and I feel like a honey badger and a mountain lion would be best buds <laughs> on the world together so that's even better <laughs> that's unless the honey badger is trying to scare the lion <laughs> yeah or the lion tries to eat the honey badger <laughs> I think the lion knows better than that <laughs> um, thank you so much for such an empowering and enlightening talk and I think this is a kind of, the kind of conversation that needs to happen more, particularly in design and tech spaces, because what I've seen over the last few months is a movement in tech and design to be woke and to create change. But very few voices of the people who are at the receiving end of that change, having an opinion or shaping it. And it's so important that those voices are heard and, like you said, amplified so that it's done in the right way for the right reasons and not for ethics but because it's good business so thank you thank you thank you for having me it was fun <laughs> so there we go that's all for this episode of culture cast i really hope you enjoyed it as, I, as much as i did recording it 
If you like this episode, feel free to visit thisishcd.com where you can access our back catalogue of over 100 episodes with episodes related to service design, product management, design research and much more. And if you want to get in touch with me or any of the guests, then the details will be in the podcast show notes. Thank you and see you again soon.